according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Turn to John chapter 8. John chapter 8 this morning. John 8, 0. Or John 8, minus 1. Whatever you want to call it, the, the last verse of chapter 7, which is typically numbered 753, um, probably ought to begin, ought to be first verse of chapter 8, if uh, it would be a better chapter division, perhaps. Assuming, of course, that the first 11 verses actually belong in the text. What we're going to examine today is uh, the verses... Uh, 753 through 811, and it is a text-critical examination, and if that doesn't make any sense to you, that's okay, we'll explain it. And the question we're going to ask ourselves is, does this passage belong in our Bibles? And uh, it's, it's, a, it's a very important study. Obviously, if it's in the Bible, then we're accountable, we have to live it, and, and so forth. Uh, but if it doesn't belong in the Bible, then how did it get there, and what's it doing there, and are there other parts of our Bible that don't belong? Do we just haphazardly pick and choose, say, well, you know what, I, I really don't like this book. Let's, let's just say it doesn't belong in the Bible. Well, no, we're not free to do that based on our own convenience or on the base of our own opinion or whether or not we, we like a particular doctrine. We can't pick and choose. In fact, Scripture is warned very seriously against adding even a single word, adding to or taking away from God's law. We can't do that. Now, if... We come to suspect in the 21st century that in previous centuries um, things have crept into the text. We need to identify that, we need, whether it's a, a word or a verse or a paragraph. And that's what we have here in this case, 12 verses that are questionable. And I will attempt to uh, communicate it uh, in such a way as to not give away things ahead of time. Have you done a study on this before? Have I said anything about this paragraph before? Are you prejudiced in your study this morning? Do you think it belongs in here or not? What does Pastor Bob think? Uh, I don't want to spoil by saying, well, Pastor Bob thinks such and such, so he knows everything. It must be right. Okay? No, let's look at it and see what does this text say. You probably have footnotes even in your modern English Bible. Don't read your footnotes yet. All right. Let's have some fun. First of all, though, let's start with some prayer. Make sure we're in fellowship. That's always required. Make sure we're humble before the Word of God. And this morning, let's ask for an extra measure of uh, relaxed mental attitude. All right. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we do come humbly before the throne of grace. And we, we are... Uh, humbled when we stop to consider the blessing that it is to even be in Bible class, that you are the God of the universe. Your ways are not our ways, neither are your thoughts our thoughts, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so your thoughts higher than our thoughts, and your ways are higher than our ways. And yet, Father, you sovereignly chose to communicate your thoughts, to share your thoughts, to, to bless us with the gifting of your thoughts through the revealed Word of God. And, and Father, we, we count that as a blessing. We, we, we take it for granted far too often. 
Father, uh, set aside distractions today and, and open the eyes of our understanding as we examine, not only we examine your word, but we examine technical aspects of uh, how we have learned to study your word on the basis in which you wrote it. So bless our study and we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. We're going to do a couple of things, I think, just big picture concepts as we get started here. Um, the, the the field of text criticism, textual criticism, um, is 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 a good field. It's a, it's a wonderful field. It needs to be applied. Uh, don't don't get scared by the word criticism because we're not being critical. That is dismissive or condemnatory. But we are being discerning in our evaluation and our estimation. And, and historically, there have been two modes of criticism. Uh, sometimes they're referred to as higher and lower criticism. Uh, textual criticism is actually the lower of the two criticisms. Um, higher criticism is uh, has its place, but unfortunately, in the 19th century, it was extremely destructive. It, it is the source of all modernism, of all liberalism that swept in, uh, across Europe in the 19th century and, and swept across America in the 20th century, and is the reason why pick your favorite Reformed denomination today, Methodists, Lutherans, Presbyterians, Episcopalians, all of them plunged into the depths of liberalism in the 20th century because of uh, higher criticism. Well, we're not going to deal with higher criticism today, but textual criticism is, is absolutely essential anytime you're dealing with written documents, anytime you're dealing with copies of written documents or copies of copies of copies, which is what we have in our uh, text tradition. So, um, in the process of human beings that copy one manuscript to another and copy another manuscript to another and, and so forth, mistakes happen. All right, that's mistakes, errors in human transmission, not errors in divine authorship. So if you walk out of here at 11 o'clock thinking that there's mistakes in your Bible, uh, then you're walking out with the wrong idea. All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable. God inspired the Scriptures. And the original, what we call the autographs, the original, the, the very first literal parchment that, that quill was applied to parchment and the first book of uh, John, when, when the Apostle John put quill to parchment and penned that autograph manuscript, it was absolutely 100% perfect because God inspired the drafting of that document. Now, the moment it got copied, a human being did that. And we all understand human error. All right? And errors popped in. Some were unintentional, just mistakes of the eye, and some are uh, intentional. As the years unfolded, um, for example, um, any of you read anything from a couple hundred years ago in English where there's these goofy-looking F-looking things, but they're not Fs, they're Ss? Like the original Declaration of Independence and the original Constitution in Congress assembled. And what are those Fs doing in there? Okay, well, languages change. Alphabets change. Spelling changes. And the manuscript tradition from the 1st century through the 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th, up to the 15th century, spelling changes were reflected in almost every manuscript you want to look at. So that's what we deal with. All right, the, per the Pericope de Adultera. What are we talking about with the Pericope de Adultera? I used to call it Pericope. And then uh, I exposed my foolish pronunciation one, at one point, and the man said, actually, it's pronounced Pericope. So I've learned ever since then. Pericope. What are we talking about with the Pericope? We're going to give you just a short introduction and then um, a couple of different developments, actually three different developments, and then 
a summary conclusion under Roman numeral 5. So Roman numeral 1, the uh, introduction and definition, and we explain it here under main point A, the pericope de adultera. And sometimes it, you, you'll see it in commentaries, you'll see it in print. Uh, sometimes they drop the, the day, it's just pericope adultera. And uh, sometimes the adultera ends with an A-E instead of an A, that, that combined Latin combination ash, A-E. Anyway, the pericope adulteri, or pericope de adultera, what it is, it is the disputed text of John 7:53 through 8:11. The disputed text. It is one of the most significant problem texts in the New Testament. Of all the exercises we ever do, typically we're examining uh, a word, a single word, or uh, a stretch of words, three or four words, that maybe the words aren't in dispute, but sometimes their order is reversed, or sometimes their order is scrambled a little bit. Um, rarely do we have an, a verse in its entirety. Occasionally we do. Rarely do we have multiple verses in their entirety that are disputed. So this is one of the most significant problem texts in the New Testament. There are others, however. And when we say problem texts, that's just a phrase. Don't get worried about it. All right? If uh, your Bible is no less God-breathed and inspired today than it was yesterday just because you're getting a, a text criticism exercise this morning. And we, we can be relaxed about 12 verses in John being questionable and not have our faith shaken or left fearful that, ooh, maybe we don't really have a Bible or maybe we don't really have God's Word. We do have God's Word. And I think, my opinion, is that the fact that we can handle the questionable manuscript evidence so clearly tells us how carefully we have treated the Bible itself as a whole. See? The reason why, even though maybe a passage is in question, we don't just delete it or ignore it or pretend it's not there. It gets printed up. It gets typed out. It gets inserted in the text. You can read it, see what it is. No, nobody's trying to hide anything. The verses are there. You can read through them and learn the information from them. So, uh, But examining whether they originally appeared in the Gospel of John in the first century is a legitimate question. If they didn't pop up until a later century, well, why is that? And how did they get inserted in there if they weren't in there from the beginning? Okay, so that's part of what we'll answer. There are other sections as well. Two, primarily. Other significant problem texts include the end of the Gospel of Mark. Are you familiar with that? How many verses are in Mark 16? Are there eight verses or are there 20? Those are the two leading candidates, but there are additional endings beyond those two. There's actually the short ending, the long ending, the, long, the extra long ending, and then the very prolonged and, uh, and, and very wordy uh, ending in the Gospel of Mark. And I'm sure if you turn over there, you'll find your footnotes and different things that are mentioned. Let me just grab it real quickly here. Mark 16. In, in my edition, this is a New American Standard 95 update, and uh, it is not a Lockman publication, though, because it is a, well, yeah, Foundation Publications, but it has a separate printing history because this is the large print edition, which came from a different press than the standard print edition. Anyway, uh, ending with verse 8, where the angel says, uh, Go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. 
There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now, over the years, that seemed to be kind of an awkward ending to a gospel. And different scribes added elements beyond that, starting with verse 9. Now, after he had risen. But many manuscripts did not have anything after verse 8. That's where it ended. A lot of manuscripts had verses 9 down through verse 20. Although, those verses themselves have a ton of problems because they didn't all get worded the same way. And that's usually a clue too. If you got some things you think are extra verses and you find that they're added in different ways in different manuscripts, that's a clue. Well, the majority of the Byzantine text anyway ends Mark with verse 20. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the word by signs that followed. Okay, and that seems like a more significant or substantial or appropriate ending to a gospel book. Well, then you've got other manuscripts later in later centuries that got even more wordy. And they promptly reported all these instructions to Peter and his companions. And after that, Jesus himself sent out through them from east to west the sacred and imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation. <sighs> okay. And so what scholars do is they examine the manuscripts, and we've got thousands of them, and, and they know what centuries they come from, which ones are earlier, which ones are later, which ones came from Europe, which ones came from Turkey, which ones came from Palestine. Um, I'm sorry, I don't like using that term. Which ones came from Canaan, all right? Which ones came from Africa? Some of the best preserved ones came from uh, the, the deserts of Africa. And, uh, and put this all together, and we can tell which ones are added on later on. So anyway, there's a significant problem text. Another one comes up in 1 John. This one also has a Latin name. It's called the Comma Johannium. In uh, 1 John 5, what was uh, previously known as verses 7 and 8. And uh, as a matter of fact, New American Standard does not even print them. They just uh, give you a footnote. First John 5, 7 says, For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and the three are in agreement. Well, there, are, there was a Latin uh, tradition that expanded that quite a bit. And Erasmus was a little bit blackmailed into bringing it across and putting it into his third Greek edition. He didn't have it in his first two. And as a matter of fact, the Pope was rather angry. The Catholic officials were angry that he did not include this in his first two Greek editions. Neither did he include it. He did a lot of Vulgate uh, text criticism work as well. He didn't include it in his Latin editions either until his third edition. And so uh, a few late manuscripts add the words. Uh, there are three that testify in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. And there are three that testify on earth, the Spirit, the water, the blood, and then the rest of verse 8 continues. So what you have here is kind of an insertion of uh, wordiness in between verse 7 and verse 8. All right. And... Uh, the only ones, I think, legitimately in modern times that accept that they are legitimate are uh, the same Romans that insist that the Pope is infallible. 
because you have to take his word for it to put that phrase into your Bible. It doesn't belong there. But Erasmus made a rather bold statement. He said, if you can show me one Greek manuscript that has it, I'll include it in my third edition. Uh, whereupon they promptly forged one and said, here's a Greek manuscript. And it was obviously a forgery. Erasmus knew it was a forgery. It's undeniably a forgery. Modern uh, uh, science can demonstrate the age difference in the ink <laughs> and demonstrates a 13th century text. Anyway. So the comma Johannium is another disputed passage. These are really the three. These are the three kings of disputed texts in text criticism exercises. The Pericope de Adultera, the ending of the Gospel of Mark, and then the comma Johannium. Now, obviously the longest one of which, well, Mark is multiple verses from verse 10 to verse 20, but here is, is a huge passage of text in John chapter 8 that uh, is, in, is in question. When, when the Apostle John sat down and wrote out John, were these verses a part of the God-breathed inspired text? That's, that's what we evaluate. Now, we're going to give you arguments against and arg arguments for. And I swapped this around three different times. Which one do we want to do first? The arguments for including them or the arguments for excluding them? And you can almost spoil things, right? If you, if you build a massive whopping case... On one hand, and then you turn around and shoot it full of holes on the other hand, what, what are you left with? Okay, And then if you choose which order you do it in, you can kind of set the table yourself. But let's do uh, the arguments against canonicity. The textual evidence against canonicity. Okay, uh, This is, this is uh, not only is it important for Bible studies, but it's, it's a normal way of life. It's what we do all the time. You know, if I, if I take a check to the bank and somebody gives me a check for $100 and in between wherever I was in the bank, I, I squeezed a couple of extra zeros in there and changed it from $100 to $1,000 or $10,000 or whatever, right? I monkey with the document a little bit and then I hand it to the bank teller and say, okay, I'd like to cash this, please, or deposit or whatever. And they look at this and they say, well, you know, this seems kind of shady, isn't that a normal thing you would do in life? Or you sign a real estate contract and then after signing it, you got a copy and they got a copy and then you go home and you, you monkey with it a little bit? Well, he's got his copy, which he can put side by side with your copy. And yeah, they're different. So how did they get different? What changed? And that's, that's the beautiful thing that we have. The fact that we have over 5,000 Greek manuscripts is that we can put them all out next to each other and, and examine them and say, okay, now what changed? Because something changed in the copies that were, that were produced. And you have to, you can't go on the opinion of the one reading it. You always got to go back to the intention of the one who wrote it. You can't tell the bank teller, well, yeah, they wrote $100, but they really meant to write $1,000. That's what they meant. Well, you tell me that's what they meant, but this is what they wrote. And that's why we say, get it in writing. Get it in writing, because then the intentions of the one saying it, he puts it in writing, and we legally and logically, we assume that if he put it in writing, he wrote what he meant. And if he made a mistake, he has to be the one to come back and correct it, not the reader. So what we do in Bible studies, in text criticism exercises, we want to find what was the intent of the author. What did he mean when he wrote it? 
All right. Evidence against canonicity. In other words, evidence that these verses were not in the original manuscripts and crept in later in the tradition. First of all, we'll give you five of these main areas. The first one of which is we examine the manuscripts themselves. The account is lacking in the earliest existing Greek manuscripts. As I said, we've got thousands of Greek manuscripts and we have them dated pretty conclusively. Uh, in, in every case, we've got them narrowed down to a particular century and in many cases we have them narrowed down even to a particular decade within that century. So the account is lacking in the earliest existing Greek manuscripts. And I'll spell out what these manuscripts are. All right. Under sub point one. And, and by the way, I don't know, some of this is kind of wordy and however you're keeping your notes or whatever. Uh, we may just, when we're done, make photocopies of this and let you take it home. For those of you that enjoy manuscript studies, there they are. And maybe that doesn't make any sense to you. But these are the ones they're lacking. They're lacking in Papyrus 66 and Papyrus 75. That's what the P stands for. The papyri are the earliest manuscripts we have dating back even to the second century. Papyrus 66, Papyrus 75. Likewise, Sinaiticus. That's, uh, whoops, don't do that. Sinaiticus. Blue won't work. Let's switch to yellow. Vaticanus. Early Uncial manuscripts, some of the earliest ones that we have. The remainder of those are not as early, but in this case, the fact that we have later manuscripts that still don't have this passage is also significant. You know, Codex Washingtonius, that's W. Codex Washingtonius, I want to say 9th century, 10th century, something like that. Fairly late manuscript. You say, well, what good is it to look at something that late? It's called Washingtonius because it's presently housed in Washington, D.C. So it's the property of the United States government, uh, and it is held in trust by the Smithsonian Institute. Um, well, interestingly enough, these scribes, even centuries later, are still making copies of the Gospel of John, and, and they still don't include the Percopi de Adultera from earlier manuscripts they were copying from. So when it started to appear in certain strands, it was by no means universal. It was by no means inserted in every strand because even some fairly late manuscripts, when you get past the uncules and you get into the minuscules, in later centuries, they, they learned that, you know what, we can save space on a page by using lowercase letters instead of everything in capital letters. Right. And so you gradually saw an end of the of the capital letter manuscripts and you started getting into the minuscules into the lowercase manuscripts, including 33, which is called Queen of the Cursives. It's a wonderful, very uh, the, the penmanship, the beauty, the completeness of, uh, of those leaves is, is a, a thing of beauty. That's why they call it the Queen of the Cursives. All of these minuscule manuscripts, uncules have letters, minuscules are numbered. So that's what they're lacking in. Now, there's a couple that you're missing. You say, well, wait a minute. A and C aren't there. And there's some of the earlier ones. When, you, when you're looking at manuscripts, the first thing you're thinking of is, what does Sinaiticus have? What does A, B, and C, what do they have? When you're looking at these abbreviations. What do the papyri have? Those are the first things you glance at. Then you look at 33, Queen of the Curses, and other things. Well, 
You say A and C are right there. What's wrong with them? Do they, do they include the pericope? Actually, they don't include the pericope. However, we have to say that they're damaged and we're missing those leaves. Right? It's like the dog ate my homework. They're, they're, they're gone. The pages are physically gone 2,000 years later. A, Codex A and C, that's, that's um, Alexandrinus and uh, Ephraimia rescriptus. A and C are defective at this point. But it is highly probable that neither contained the section. And I don't think it's even disputable. The reason why is they know the leaves that are missing. They know the, the part. It may not be missing. It may just be smudged. It may be just so damaged with burns or water or whatever that it's unreadable. But the, the gap of what's there doesn't leave enough room to squeeze all 12 of these verses in there before you get down to um, verse 12, I am the light of the world and, and the things that happen next. So Because it's, they are defective, but the gap there is just so small, there's no way that uh, A and C would contain the pericope. And so it's, it's universally agreed that, that A and C belong up there with the rest of those that are listed under point one. Thirdly, so what was the earliest one that does have the story in there? What is the earliest one? The earliest Greek manuscript known to contain the passage is D, otherwise known as Codex Bize, all right, named after the person who discovered Theodore Bize, uh, Codex D, Bize, and that was either a 5th or 6th century manuscript, but it's not on the screen here, um, and it is the earliest Greek manuscript. However, Biza is not only a Greek manuscript. Biza is a bilingual document, Latin on the left, Greek on the right, and you're going to pick up on something there very quickly because where the story starts to appear is not in Greek manuscripts. It starts to appear in Latin manuscripts. And so the earliest Greek manuscript known to contain it is a bilingual Latin and Greek on facing pages, Codex, Codex Biza, of the 5th or 6th century. It is joined by several old Latin manuscripts. And they're listed there for you, lowercase b, c, e, and so forth. They are the old Latin manuscripts that are older than the Vulgate. The pericope appears to be a piece of floating tradition which circulated in certain parts of the Western Church. Italy, France, and North Africa. The Western Church. And then it was subsequently inserted into various manuscripts. And here's something else real cool. If you, if you don't write anything else down. Various manuscripts at various places. Not always after John 7.52. That becomes a clue. All right. We'll point it out here as well. Still writing? Take another sip. <laughs> the earliest Greek manuscripts known to contain the passage is Codex Biza, which is capital letter D in your apparatus. 5th or 6th century. It is joined by several old Latin manuscripts. Remember, Biza itself is a bilingual Latin and Greek codex. The pericope appears to be a piece of floating tradition which circulated in certain parts of the Western Church. And it was subsequently inserted into various manuscripts at various places. And here's where they are. Subpoint so A. Most scribes thought that it would interrupt John's narrative least if it was inserted after 752, John 752. 
And that's what we have here. And here's the list of manuscripts that contain the pericope, starting with D. D is the earliest one. That's a fairly lengthy list. As you see them there, D, E, F, G, H, K, M, S, U. And then after, after they ran out of English letters, they switched to Greek letters to keep naming the uncials. Um, so you have gamma, lambda, and pi. The earliest minuscules to contain it here included 28, 579, 700, and 1579. So most scribes put it there. However, somebody else moved it up to uh, after verse 36. So um, where he says, where I go, you will seek me, you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews then said to one another, you know, where does this man intend to go? He's not going to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and uh, so forth. And then they insert this story. Uh, everyone went to his home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives early in the morning. He came again to the temple and then they, they dragged this adulterous woman in here and all of this. And then when that's done with, go and sin no more. Then it's back to verse 37. Now on the last day of the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, Okay, so they, they move the story up in between verse 36 and verse 37. It's only one manuscript that does that, manuscript 225, an, a, a minuscule manuscript of later centuries. So if you have one single manuscript that did that, you think that's the original? No, it just means there was a scribe sitting down copying John one day and said, you know what, I think this paragraph goes better up here, which tells you something tells you that the scribes knew that eh, this passage is kind of iffy, even back then. Others placed it at the end of the book, after chapter 21. In fact, there's a whole family of manuscripts that did that. What's called in the minuscules Family 1. And Family 1 is comprised of Manuscript 1, 118, 131, 209. They're all considered the same family because they all had the same, either the same scribes copying them or they... Uh, they were all copied simultaneously. Uh, sometimes what would happen would be you would have a room full of scribes like today, right? How about this? We've got a room full of scribes here today. And you're all going to sit there and you have a reader up front. And he says, okay, now write this down. And he says a sentence and you all sit there and write them out. And when we're done at the end of the day, what do we have? We have as many copies as we had scribes to write them out. That's... Uh, Mass production in the ancient world. This is all pre-printing press, of course. So, uh, family one is a family of minuscule manuscripts that are all very closely related. We've got a family one and a family 13 that are uh, very well documented in uh, the minuscule manuscripts. So, family one, in addition to family one, you also have 1076, 1570, 1582. All those manuscripts, uh, what is that, seven of them all together, they take this whole story and... Tack it on to the end of the Gospel of John. So your Gospel of John comes to an end. And uh, this is the disciple who is testifying to these things and wrote these things. We know that his testimony is true. And then this, the pericope de adultera. And then there were also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose even the world itself could not contain the books that wouldn't be written. So scribes just said, you know what, Let's. the story is kind of iffy. Let's just tack it on the back. We'll make it a, an appendix of sorts. And uh, so forth. 
The old Georgian revision of the 11th century put it after 744. So they moved it to a different spot in chapter 7. A little bit earlier than verse 52. But after verse 44, where some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. And then everyone went to his home. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he comes back. They bring this adulterous woman, so forth. Go and sin no more. And then uh, the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees. And actually, I kind of like that the best. If you're going to insert this story somewhere, I think that's the best spot. But the only ones that did that were the uh, was the old Georgian revision. That's not the state, the country, in the caucus. All right, South Russia. I mentioned family one. Here's family 13. You want to know where they put it? They put it in the Gospel of Luke. <laughs> All right. These scribes said, you know what? Uh, this doesn't really belong in John. This, 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 put this over in Luke. And so there's a whole family of manuscripts, family 13. They're all minuscules from, from later centuries, uh, starting with 13, 69, 124, 230, and others. And the whole family in family 13 takes the pericope and puts it after Luke 21, 38. There's one Lone Ranger out there, manuscript 1333, that tacks it at the end in Luke 2453. And um, they did the same thing that... Uh, the other guys did. They made it an appendix to Luke instead of making it an appendix to John. Just put it at the end of the book. Many of the manuscripts, when they put it in there, they put it in there with a great big mark called an obelisk. Or they put an asterisk by the verses. Uh, e did that. M did that. Uh, Lambda did that. They included them where they placed them in John. They, they, they put them in there, but then they put a mark by them as a scribal uh, mark indicating the questionable nature of the verses. So even though they do show up, they, uh, they put a mark recognizing the dubious nature of the verses. Finally, some of the passages that do insert the story, go ahead and add to the story by also letting you know the words that Jesus wrote in the dirt. Because if you glance to chapter 8 and verse 6, we just, we're just told that uh, he doesn't really say anything to them. They were saying this, they might have grounds to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down with his finger and wrote in the ground. But it doesn't tell us what he wrote. And likewise, in verse 8, again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. But it doesn't say what he wrote. And so scribes said, well, that's not really very cool. Well, he must have written something there. So they had these words effectively saying that what he was writing was the sins of each of them. He was down there writing in the dirt. You know, here's Fred and he's a murderer and here's Joe and he cheats on his wife. And here's, you know, that he was he was writing all their sins down there in the dirt. OK, maybe he was. Who knows? The text doesn't say that except for a few few manuscripts that that do that. All right. Is that enough? Does that prove things to you? The early manuscripts don't have them. And then when they started creeping in in the 5th, 6th, ninth, 10th centuries, when they started creeping in, boy, the story got put everywhere. Different places in John, even in Luke, different places. They didn't know where to put the story. They knew it was a story. They had it from the Latin 
They just didn't know where to put it in the New Testament. Main point being, now remember I said there's five lines of evidence. The first one is the Greek manuscripts. Evidence number two include translations of the New Testament. Because not only did we have copies of manuscripts going on all those centuries, you know, Greek manuscripts copied into new Greek manuscripts, copied into new Greek manuscripts, updating the spelling and all that. Not only was that going on, but then other languages were getting their own Bibles. And in those translations, for instance, the old Syriac, going back to the 3rd and 4th century, and uh, the Arabic translation from the Diatessaron, they don't have the passage. They're not in there. Tatian was the church father who wrote a harmony of the Gospels called the Diatessaron. He did what we're doing here, a Life of Christ series. And he created what he called the Diatessaron, the through the four, and uh, was basically Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John put into four columns and, and let you compare them. And his edition, the Diatessaron, doesn't have the pericope. That's a pretty good early testimony. It wasn't there. It wasn't there in the manuscripts he was using to create his Diatessaron. And then when it was translated into Syriac, no pericope. When it was translated into Arabic, no pericope. And the Peshitta, the better manuscripts of the Peshitta, do not have it. Later manuscripts started to sneak it in there the way that later Greek manuscripts started to sneak it in there. The old Coptic churches did not include it. The Coptic church still exists to this day in modern times in uh, Egypt, in Ethiopia. The old Coptic churches did not include it in their Bible. They went straight from 752 to 812. And if you, if you glance at it, they answered him, You are not also from Galilee. Are you certain to see that no prophet arises out of Galilee? And then verse 12, Then Jesus again spoke to them saying, Just continues right on the next event in the temple. So, um, Sahidic, Sub-Akmimic, and Boharic, those are all different branches of Coptic. Um, interesting, all three branches of Coptic, none of them included the pericope. The Armenian manuscripts, the old Georgian versions, the Gothic version, and several old Latin manuscripts omit the story. It's only a handful of Latin manuscripts that included it. It gained popularity in the Western church among the Latin churches, and then eventually went from Latin into Greek. That appears to be the order of how it developed. So the early translations are a huge clue as well. Because many of those are older than the Greek manuscripts that we have that we're looking at. Alright, so A was Greek manuscripts, B was early translations. C, church fathers. Uh, over in the church library, in the top left corner, we've got a long row of books that are the writings of the church fathers. All right, And for centuries, the church fathers were prolific writers. And they quoted scripture in, in almost everything they, they spoke on, they taught about, they wrote. If we didn't have our Bibles, we could reproduce them from the quotations of the church fathers. Because they, they had so many prolific quotations. All right? No Greek church father for a thousand years after Christ refers to the pericope. None. Zero. Latin fathers was another story. There they were somewhat divided between early Latin and late Latin writers. But the, no Greek church father for a thousand years after Christ refers to the pericope. That's extraordinary. 
Greek manuscript evidence, overwhelming. Early translations, overwhelming. You know, if, if maybe the Coptic didn't have it, but the Syriac did, or maybe if the Old Georgian had it, and the, the Gothic didn't, or maybe... But none of them. Armenian, Arabic, Syriac, Coptic, Georgian. About half the Latin. All right? So then you look at the church fathers. Not a single Greek church father for a thousand years after Christ referred to the pericope. This includes several of the Greek fathers wrote commentaries on the Bible and they wrote commentaries verse by verse. Like Origen, Chrysostom, Nonus. They uh, dealt, not delf, dealt with the entire gospel verse by verse. There were commentaries on the Gospel of John. Verse by verse by verse. And they don't bring up the pericope. De adultera. Think that's a clue? <laughs> it's because their Bibles didn't have it. Dealt. The first one who does, <laughs> Euthymius Zygabinus. Euthemius Zygabinus. There's a name. Boy, if the Lord ever gives me another son. Euthemius Zygabinus Bolander. What do you think? Who lived in the first part of the 12th century. He is the first Greek writer to comment on the passage. And when he does, look, look what he says. He, even he declares that the accurate copies of the gospel do not contain it. So the first Greek author you get that refers to it says, you know what, it's a fraud. And that's not until the 12th century A.D. No Greek church father for a thousand years. All right, secondly, early Latin fathers didn't quote it. The early ones, Irenaeus, Tertullian, Cyprian. What's noteworthy about them is that Tertullian and Cyprian actually wrote about adultery. They wrote essays on adultery. They wrote biblical commentaries on adultery. They railed and preached against adultery, as we all do, right? You know, when, when, we, when we question this text and say, you know what, it's, it's not legitimate, it's not a part of the Bible, okay? it's not because the pastor is trying to make a case for adultery. <laughs> He's not saying, you know what, let's, let's take these verses out because, you know, I've got a mistress and we don't want to... No, it's not, it has nothing to do with that. It's because all the text evidence says it was a Latin tradition that filtered into the Greek New Testament in later centuries. All right. Particularly when you realize that Tertullian and Cyprian, they wrote specifically on adultery, but they did not reference this passage. You can reference Mosaic Law. You can reference Thou shalt not commit adultery. You can reference David and Bathsheba. And they did. But if you're going to write something about adultery and this is in your Bible and you're not going to use this, this woman caught in the very act, right? They dragged her out of bed to take her to court. So um, that's more testimony. Finally, there is the internal evidence from the text. Everything we've looked at so far has been external. When you actually look at the words themselves, look at the very words that are used, and you find issues. Style and vocabulary are different from the rest of John. 
You can count out the 82 words of this section. 14 of them, John doesn't use them anywhere else. They're not John's vocabulary. They're not John's usage. In fact, they're closer to Luke's usage than John's usage, which is probably why many of the scribes moved it over to to Luke at some point, because the scribes themselves said, man, John doesn't use these words, but Luke does. Also, the use of hosts as a temporal conjunction rather than un. John was big on un. If John's going to use uh, a temporal conjunction, as in therefore, then, or after, um, John's really big on un and doesn't use hosts. And yet this text uses hosts for the temporal conjunctions. That's, that's not Johnish. That's Lukeish. Okay? That's internal evidence. Also, it's a subjective argument, but you could say, you know what? The pericope interrupts the sequence of these events. That we have a series of messages, reaction of the message, series of message, reaction of the message. In John chapter 12, or John chapter 8 and verse 12, again, another message, reaction to the message. It says, I am the light of the world. Pharisees react. Okay? So, if you've got a, a Bible class reaction, Bible class reaction, Bible class reaction, now all of a sudden we have a, oh, can we interrupt Bible class? We, we've got this adulterous lady here, and what do you want us to do with her? And then, okay, back to a Bible class uh, reaction, Bible class reaction. It does interrupt the sequence from 752 to 812 and following. All right. All of that is the arguments against. There are, however, arguments for keeping this passage in your Bibles. Textual evidence for canonicity. Again, I'll give you A, B, C, D, and E. Actually, I'll give you an F and a G. Say, well, don't even waste your time, Pastor. You already convinced me. Right? I made it my mind. It's, it's obvious. <laughs> well, then, okay. Make up your mind and don't look at all the evidence. Just jump to your conclusion. No, you examine the opposing points and evaluate. You know what? There's, these are the reasons why you would include it. There's solid men that do. Zane Hodges believes it belongs here. Believes it's canonical, belong, believes it belongs in John 7, 53 and, and following. That it's precisely placed where it needs to be. And Zane's a uh, hundred times a Greek, better Greek scholar than I'll ever be. All right. Here's the arguments for. First of all, majority rules. The passage is found in a majority of existing Greek manuscripts. A huge majority. Uh, and so if you subscribe to the theory that the majority of manuscripts is the most accurate to the original, then at face value, you have to include this because it's in the majority of the manuscripts. No doubt about that. Um, I don't subscribe to the primacy of the majority simply because it is the majority. Uh, the majority did not become the majority until the 10th century. Uh, the majority only became the majority because the, uh, the, the imperial publishing house in Constantinople started putting these things out on an industrial basis. And when they were doing that, you ended up with a standardized imperial Byzantine text that became the majority because the Byzantine Empire uh, put them out. And, uh, and to be fair... By this stage, the 10th century we're talking about now, the Eastern Church and the Western Church were largely split by that point. And as far as Rome was concerned, they're putting out the Vulgate. 
What motivation did Rome have to publish Greek New Testaments when they had Jerome's Vulgate all the way back in, in 430? So, in the West, they were out of the Greek manuscript business by and large. They still had some. But the, in the East, the, the eastern half of the empire never abandoned the Greek language and, and maintained publication of Greek manuscripts. So, some people say, you know what? It's in the majority of the existing Greek manuscripts. Therefore, we should include the story. Also, they have a, a point, and I think it's a good point. They say it's easier to comprehend that tw- a 12-verse section of Scripture would be de- deleted by a scribe than it is to comprehend a 12-verse section of Scripture being inserted by a scribe. They say it's, it's easier to believe that a verse was omitted or a section was omitted than it is to believe that a section was inserted. I think you can make a comment, uh, a debate on that either way. Say, well, if a scribe thought it was missing and belonged in there, then a scribe would be justified in putting it in there if he thought that's where it belonged. Um, I don't find it hard to think that a scribe would take it out. But see, I think this is a straw man to begin with. Easier to comprehend that a 12-verse section would be deleted by a scribe. What they're saying is, is that it originally was in the text, but a scribe somewhere took it out. They want you to believe that a scribe took it out. But see, that's not what we're saying. We're not saying that a scribe took it out. We're saying that it never was there. It was never there at all. But they would have you believe, no, no, there was a scribe somewhere that took it out. For whatever reason. They don't really say, was he trying to hide, did he have a, a mistress of his own? What was a scribe doing, right? He took it out for what reason? Augustine thought it was because uh, pastors were trying to water down things about adultery. So anyway, that's their, that's their evidence. That's their point. Uh, Zane Hodges makes that point. Zane is convinced that scribes would not insert a whole bunch of verses, that they, but they could remove some verses. Thirdly, um, Zane does point out that, the, that text variants have an early attestation. Now, he's not necessarily talking about these variants, but most variants occur in the first 200 years of transmission. And he's right. Many of the variants we have are early variants. But just because a variant shows up early doesn't mean it's right. It's still a variant, and if it's wrong, no matter how early it shows up, it doesn't belong in the Bible. You're just going to go for an early date on a variant, proving that, well, it should be in our Bible? Well, why don't we have First Clement or the Shepherd of Hermes in our Bible, too? First Clement actually was written before Revelation was written. But it doesn't belong in our Bible. Shepherd of Hermes doesn't belong in our Bible. The Diatessaron doesn't belong in our Bible. It's a copy of the Gospels. So just because the variants, there are early variants doesn't mean that they belong in there, but that's the, that's the testimony. That's part of their evidence, what they say. They also poke a hole in the Peshitta argument. Remember earlier we said, you know, the Peshitta doesn't include it, right? Well, there's other things the Peshitta leaves out. It is true the Peshitta omitted John 7, 53 through 8, 11, but you know what? It also omitted Second Peter, Second, Third John, Jude, and Revelation. Yeah, it did. But I don't see how that relates to this question here in John. Because the Peshitta included John, it just did not have this paragraph. 
the um, publishers of the Peshitta, for whatever reason, did not include those books of their New Testament. Either they did not feel they were canonical or they didn't have their own copies or whatever they did. They, uh, they did not include those books. But that's different from saying that they chose to skip a paragraph when they translated from Greek into Syriac. So that's the point they make. They think that by making that point that they, uh, they are minimizing our argument that says, you know, Peshitta doesn't include it. And the Peshitta uh, agrees with the Coptic, with the Syriac, with the Armenian, with the Georgian, with the Arabic. It is one of all of these other languages. So uh, shoot a little dart at the Peshitta, but you haven't said anything about Coptic or Armenian or any of the other ones. And they say many of the Latin church fathers quoted it. And if a Latin church father quoted it, it must be in the Bible. Well, we already saw that most of the early Latin fathers did not. Remember the Tertullian and uh, Cyprian, the ones that actually wrote on adultery? Who were the three we mentioned? Um, Irenaeus, Tertullian, and Cyprian. Even though Tertullian and Cyprian wrote about adultery, those, early, those three early Latin ones did not. Later Latin ones did, including Ambrose. Let me just give you a list of these guys. You don't care about these guys, but you can write them down anyway. Ambrose. And you know what? My, my theory, and we'll find out when we get to heaven, my theory is that it, this is a true story. This did happen. I, I, I don't dispute the story. I think it happened. I think the Pharisees dragged this adulterous woman in, and threw her at Jesus' feet and said, what do we do with this? And they were looking for grounds to accuse him. I think it happened. I don't think John wrote about it. I don't think it belongs in the Bible, but I think it happened. We're told Jesus did many things that aren't written down here in the Bible. And so... The story, obviously there were witnesses, people that saw it, people that were there, people that would then tell that story to their kids, tell their story to their kids, and so forth. And it makes its way to Italy, and Ambrose learns from it. Maybe it was even Ambrose's great-grandfather or something, passed the story down, who knows. And as soon as Ambrose relates it in Latin, it sticks. Ambrose of Milan in 374 he quotes it at least nine times. You think he liked that story? And then Augustine. Now, Augustine got saved and, and learned from Ambrose. And he uh, doubles that. About 18 times he quotes this story. And then these other guys. Patian in Spain. Faustus of the African. Rufinus of Aquileia. That's in the very n northern part of Italy. Uh, Chrysologus at Ravenna. Sedulius. He was a Scot or possibly Irish, and, uh, but he wrote in Italy. Um, Victorius, or Victorinus, depending on how you spell it. Uh, Vigilius of North Africa. Galatius, Bishop of Rome. Uh, they tell you he's one of the popes there before Gregory. Uh, Cassiodorus in southern Italy. Gregory the Great. And with a Gregory the Great stamp on it, it's now dogma in the, in the Roman church. Since Gregory wrote about it, it's, it's scripture. So there's your evidence. The Latin church fathers, many from Ambrose on, wrote about it. But not Tertullian, Cyprian, or the early ones. All right. Jerome included it in the Vulgate, but he did make a note that it was a manuscript question. 
Jerome included the passage in the Latin Vulgate, but in 420 AD, he wrote uh, in his dialogue against the Pelagians, he wrote, in the Gospel according to John, in many manuscripts, both Greek and Latin, is found the story of the adulterous woman who was accused before the Lord. Now, what does Jerome admit right there? When he says, in many manuscripts, both Greek and Latin, what does he say there? He, John, he knows that most of the manuscripts don't have that story in there. But he says, in many manuscripts, both Greek and Latin, has found the story of the adulterous woman who was accused before the Lord. So he knew that it was a manuscript question. But he put it in the Vulgate, and it's been there ever since. Finally, Augustine, around 430 A.D. He was of the opinion that certain manuscripts were lacking the passage because it was deliberately removed. And even he knew that many manuscripts had it, many manuscripts did not. But uh, he says uh, it was deliberately removed. Certain persons of little faith, or rather, this is a quote, certain persons of little faith, or rather enemies of the true faith, fearing, I suppose, lest their wives should be given impunity in sinning, remove from their manuscripts the Lord's act of forgiveness towards the adulteress, as if he who said, sin no more, had granted permission to sin. Of course, Jesus did no such thing. Jesus didn't say, go commit adultery, go sin, do all you want. He said, go and sin no more. And you can't, you can't read these verses and say that, well, he approved adultery. Clearly he didn't. But anyway, Augustine concluded that that's why it was removed from manuscripts because, uh, uh, yeah, folks were afraid that their wives would get, yeah, their wives would start wandering on them or whatever. <laughs> all right. We are at the top of the hour. I've got two more areas to get into, but let's uh, hmm. let's go ahead and hold off until next week. Because I, I really don't want to, I don't want to take 58 minutes doing all this and then try to scrunch the application into 30 seconds. Okay? Because you and I still want to walk out of here at the end of the day and know that all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable. All right? And to know that as we, as we, uh, you know, the Bible stands and it is the Bible, it is God's word and we don't doubt God's word because we critically examine portions that we view as, as improperly being inserted in there. Okay. And, uh, since I have one minute left, let me switch to this. I've told you about it before. Have I shown it to you yet? Let's switch to this. All right. And um, in my Bible, and this is uh, this is not a first century manuscript. This is not a codex that was hidden away in Alexandria anywhere. This is a uh, a modern English Bible. And um, as I said, published by Foundation Publications, sometime Anaheim, California, giant print edition. Uh, 1997. This thing's 11 years old. All right. Published with modern typesetting and printing presses and computers and all the other neat stuff. And um, right here on Psalm 103. Try to get rid of the glare there. 
Bless the Lord, O my soul, all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of His benefits, who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion. And then verse 5. You see that up there in the top left corner? Who satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle, so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. Now, go ahead and turn to your Bibles. <laughs> in Psalm 103 and verse 5. And you'll find who satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. And, and you don't have to have that in there twice. It doesn't belong in there twice. So that your youth is renewed like the eagle, so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. That, that my friends, is a typo. Typographical error. It's a publishing misprint in a modern 1997 publication of a giant print edition, New American Standard Bible, so forth. All right? Now, that kind of thing happens in modern times with computers and typesetting and all this other stuff. <laughs> what do you think happens in a catacomb somewhere where Christians are hiding from the Romans and they're copying manuscripts by hand with quills and, and parchment and so forth? Yeah, mistakes happen. Errors of the eye and other things. And that's the nature of it. So we don't, we don't ignore it. We don't hide it. We're not afraid of it. We're not discouraged by uh, text criticism studies. If anything, it actually strengthens our faith. It, it convinces us how miraculous our Bibles are. We rest in the wisdom of a father who chose to reveal himself verbally and who chose to put his word in writing. And when God in his sovereignty said, I'm going to put out 39 Hebrew books and I'm going to put out 27 Greek books, and he entrusted that body of literature to human beings, do you think he was clueless? You know, yeah, they're going to goof up when they're making their own hand copies of the stuff. It's all right. He's still in charge of defending his word, teaching his word, and, and so it goes on. All right. Thank you, Father, for this study. Thank you for this day. Uh, as we continue to examine this passage, obviously, Father, uh, adultery is wrong. Obviously, uh, we're not hiding anything in this text. But the, um, the truth is, Father, as we examine it, this was a... a uh, story that became popular in the West uh, among the Latin uh, teachers of the day in the 5th century and, and eventually found itself into our New Testaments. And so, Father, we, we identify that, we realize that, and we thank you that we can be diligent to present ourselves approved unto God, workmen that need not to be ashamed, rightly dividing, accurately handling the word of truth. Thank you, Father. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.